given on June 22nd of last year in the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. And there was a long host of a long list of the host committee, many government men, George Will, many other people. Uh, there were a lot of congressmen there, senators, people in the administration. The title at that time was the Secular Humanist Worldview versus the Christian Worldview and the Biblical Perspectives on Military Preparedness. It was this double title. It was given then, a number of people have seen it. Uh, it's been summarized in some places, but never been published in full. And then this autumn, uh, Nelson Company are the, is bringing out a book called Who is for Peace? Uh, and it will contain an answer by James Hitchcock, who is a professor on St. Louis University, a Roman Catholic university, a Roman Catholic professor of history, uh, who's written a very fine book on humanism. And uh, he's writing an answer to the Roman Catholic bishops. And then there is a Soviet dissident who will have a section. And it'll come out as a small book about the same size as the Gandhi book, uh, which is in the bookstore here, uh, in the same sort of format. And we're hoping to see it released in September. So that is the history uh, of, this, uh, of this lecture. The theme of this essay or lecture may at first appear to be a double one. But actually, these two halves are not in conflict. As we shall see, they make one unity. The secular humanist worldview versus the Christian worldview and the biblical perspectives on military preparedness. First of all, we must be very careful to define what we mean by humanism. By humanism, we're not talking about humanitarianism. I just say in passing, uh, I think some Christians have made, been very confused in not keeping these three words I'm dealing with uh, separate and uh, clearly defined. By humanism, we're not talking about humanitarianism. Humanitarianism means being kind to people. And as Christians, we should be humanitarian even more than anyone else. We must be equally careful not to bring into confusion the difference between humanism and the humanities. A study of the humanities is a study of human creativity, often related to classical learning, that is, for the Greeks and the Romans, but also the, the whole of human creativity. A creativity. And I would say it should include properly an interest in the creativity by Christians and also by non-Christians. And as such, Christians above everyone else should be interested in the humanities. I'd say again, uh, often I think Christian education in Christian schools has been greatly, greatly lacking in the interest in the humanities, the arts, music, and so on, uh, as an exhibition of human creativity. Many of my books, films, etc., deal with a Christian consideration of the humanities. Being thankful for the creativity, which is a natural part of man, I spell that with a capital M, because people are made in the image of God. As a bracket here, I would say uh, my emphasis on the priorities, which I gave last year, 
at the Library Mini Conferences emphasized the fact that if we're going to have real Christian education and protect it from the inroads of the state, uh, it must be good education, and that means we should really have an interest in the humanities of true, true creativity across the board. And we know why people are creative, and the world around us does not know why man is creative and the animals are not, which is the case. But we know why people are creative and show creativity, and that is because all people are made in the image of God. Then we must ask what humanism is, which we must contrast with great clarity to the Christian worldview. We must realize that the contracts go back to two different views of final reality. What is final reality? The Judeo-Christian worldview, the final reality, is the infinite personal God who is truly there objectively, whether we think he is there or not. He is not there just because we think he is there. He is there objectively. He is the creator. He is the creator of everything else. And we must never forget that one of the distinguishing marks of the Judeo-Christian God is that not everything is the same to him. He has a character. And some things conform to his character and some things conflict with that character. To this God, in contrast to Buddhism and Hinduism, for example, not everything is the same. And therefore, there are absolutes, right and wrong, in the world. As we come to the other side, to the final reality, uh, which is being taught in our schools, public schools, and which is much of the framework of the thinking and writing of our day, the final reality is thought of as material energy, which has existed forever in some form, and which has its present configuration by pure chance. The real issue is the question of final reality. The different lies in what the final reality is. Either the infinite personal God to whom not everything is the same, or merely material or energy which is impersonal, totally neutral to any value system or any interest in man as man. In this view, the final reality gives no value system, no basis for law, and no basis for man as unique and important. Beginning about 80 years ago in the United States, we began to move from a Judeo-Christian consensus or a Judeo-Christian ethos in this country to a humanist consensus and has come to a special climax in the last 40 years. For anyone who is 50 years of age or more here in this room, the whole dramatic shift in this country has come in your lifetime. Something to be very sober about. The whole dramatic shift has come in your lifetime. I'll add something here. Uh, the first signs of it, of course, was among the intellectuals, such as Oliver Wendell Holmes. And 101 years ago, he made his tremendous statement, the man is no different from the grain of sand or the baboon. 101 years ago, it began to come into the intellectual field. Uh, think of John Dewey, education, for example. 
about 80 years, it began to enter into the general scene. And from the last, in the last 40 years, it has come to a tremendous climax in law in every other area. So those of us who are here uh, who are 40 years of age and under, it has come uh, 40 years of age, pardon me, and uh, uh, as we consider that, we must realize that the entire change has come in our lifetime, if we're that age. That brings a very sober thought, of course, as to responsibility for allowing this to overcome the consensus and the ethos as we have. And today we must say with tears that largely the consensus in our country and in the Western world is no longer Judeo-Christian, but the general consensus is humanist with this proper definition of humanist, with its idea that the fixed reality is only material energy which has existed forever, shaped into its present form by chance. There is no value system at all from that final reality. No one has said it better than Jacques Monod, the Nobel Prize winner in biology, a Frenchman, who wrote a book some years ago, which was very popular at the time, called Chance and Necessity. His view is uh, that, this is the, that this is the final reality. He holds this view for himself. This is his view. And then he laid down very firmly that with this view, there is no way to determine the ought from the is. That's his own words that if we live in the silent universe, which is totally silent to any value system, any intrinsic value to man, any basis for law, if that's what the final reality is, we must realize there's no way to tell the ought from the is. From what exists, we have no guidelines. Totally, totally silent universe. On this basis, therefore, man must make himself the measure of all things. Do understand this. It's not, it's not a fluke that it's turned out this way. If there's no value system anywhere else or any basis for law or any, uh, anything out there somehow uh, that gives an intrinsic value to man, then man must make himself the measure of all things. And man has. The things that have come into our country which have troubled us are only the inevitable results of this worldview. I've said in other lectures that Christians have thought too much in bits and pieces. They're troubled by this, they're troubled by that, they're troubled by the other thing. But what they don't realize is that these things are all symptoms of a single basic problem, and that is, what is the worldview? What is the final reality? And the fact that we are, by law, taught in our public schools, uh, not allowed to teach anything else. The final reality is only the silent universe. This being so, therefore, of course, there's a lack of value system. Of course, therefore, there's no basis for law. You only have sociological law. It couldn't be any other way because there's no value system from anywhere else to give it. So humanism, rightly defined as the man is the measure of all things, which is the definition of the Enlightenment, actually. It was their own definition of, uh, of humanism that this isn't the first step. The first step is the wrong final reality, and then that's all the possibility there is. Man must be the measure of all things. He must be the measure of all things uh, in every area. If you hold this worldview, you must realize there is no source of knowledge 
except what man can find for himself. All revelation is ruled out. First thing is not morals. The first thing is knowledge. There's no source of knowledge except a relativistic knowledge. And that's all, because man is the measure of all things, and it is only what man discovers for himself empirically uh, that then is knowledge. All revelation, all other kinds of knowledge is shut out. Therefore, knowledge never can be certain. The dilemma of what your youngsters and you who are younger are wrestling with is not, first of all, value systems, but no knowledge today can be certain. And there can be no value system except that which is totally arbitrary. This view leaves us with no final value system, and therefore with only personal, arbitrary, relative values. That's personal value system. It isn't only Fletcher who teaches situational ethics today. It is the general concept that we find on the basis of this view of the final reality. And more serious than the personal arbitrary value systems is the fact that it leaves us only with arbitrary law. There is no basis for law. Law becomes only the decision of a small group of people, and what they decide at that given moment is for the good of society. And that is all. Because the final reality gives no clue as to what law should be and is left, uh, uh, left up to a group of people, the Supreme Court, or whoever they are, to make their own decision as to what is good for society uh, at the moment. So there are relative personal values. And there is arbitrary law. And there is also a loss of any intrinsic value to the individual person. This is the reason that today, that in this country, we accept which would have been an abomination just 11 years ago. And that is abortion growing on into a fantasy, the killing of babies after they're born if they do not come to, up to someone's standard of a value of life worthy to be lived, and on into the drift toward the euthanasia of the aged. This is all a natural result, a mathematical certainty of the acceptance of this other view concerning final reality and the lowering, therefore, of any view uh, of human life. In their view, the final reality has nothing to say about any real value, any unique value of human life. In our country, this shows itself in many ways, but, is most clearly, but it most clearly shows itself in the syndrome of abortion leading to a foundicide, leading to the euthanasia of the agent. When Dr. C. Everett Coop, my son Frankie, and I worked on whatever happened to human race, and we began to talk about infanticide, people really thought we were very extreme and out in left field. But now it has been declared legal. In the case in Indiana, where the baby, the Down syndrome child, was allowed to die on the basis of the parents' wishes. When whatever happened to human race came out, people thought we were extreme, say infanticide would soon follow. Now it is before us on every side. And the euthanasia of the aged will also come with speed. If you think this is extreme, think back on the change from abortion to infanticide and with what speed that came. What is involved is not only a loss of the baby that is killed, 
but is a loss increasingly of the whole view uh, of the unique value of any human life. It is also, therefore, the loss of compassion. This com- the compassion this country never has had enough of, but for which it has been somewhat known, will not stand if we continue to go down this humanistic road, because there is no real value for people intrinsically and as such. It is not only the babies that can be killed by abortion and infanticide, but there is no real reason for compassion toward other people, any other people. Think of Oliver Wendell Holmes' words 101 years ago. Man is no different from the grain of sand or the baboon. I would plead with those of you who are here for your responsibility as citizens, and if anyone is in government specifically, not to allow other things to sidetrack you as to the need to stand against this downplaying of the value of human life. Many things might distract you, but you must realize, for those who are Christians especially, that there is an absolutely unbreakable link between the existence of the infinite personal God of the Bible and the unique value of human life. No one could say anything more important to understand our day. There is a total, unbreakable link between the existence of the infinite personal God of the Bible and the value, unique value, to human life. Remove the first. And there is no basis whatsoever for a unique intrinsic value to human life. These things are irrevocably linked. They're irrevocably linked. And if you allow the unique value of human life to be played down legally, as it's being done in this country, and last week with the new Supreme Court ruling was played down further, As it is at the present time in this country, not only does it lead on to other things such as euthanasia, the aged, aged, but the whole basis of compassion is lost. For those of you who think this is a small issue that should be swept under the rug, I plead with you to think again of the fact of how crucial and central this issue is. This is a vital issue for which the Judeo-Christian final reality gives us the answer. And we are losing it in our country, in our culture, in our law, in our schools, with great speed. It is where humanism in medicine and law have come together at the point of human life, and it naturally favors abortion. And equally, it has no way to put any emphasis on the value of human life when we consider it politically in other countries. That's a bridge into the second half of the lecture. The First Amendment in this country, which has been stood on its head, how careful you must be to comprehend it. This is thrown into our teeth, a civil liberties union, by the people we talk to all the time. People don't understand that the the, uh, concept of the First Amendment has been totally stood on its head. The First Amendment, when it was passed, 
was that there should be no state church for the 13 colonies and the state should never interfere with the free expression of religion. Those two things and nothing else. They didn't want a state church like the church in, in Britain or Sweden or someplace, a, a total state church uh, for the whole thir- all the 13 colonies. Most people don't realize, though, that almost all the individual states at that time had their own special relationship to special denominations, and that even, even that was not considered contrary to the First Amendment. I would repeat, the First Amendment had only two purposes that there would be no state church for the whole 13 colonies, and secondly, that the state should not interfere with into the things of religion. Of course, now it has been completely turned over. Today it has been turned over by the humanistic society, the Civil Liberties Union, and so on. And the First Amendment is made to say the very opposite. That is, the Christian values are isolated from the governmental process. Jefferson's always quoted here, but Mr. Jefferson, as they still call him, uh, at the University of Virginia, would have rebelled against this concept. Absolutely rebelled. It didn't enter in at all into his thinking. I won't go into it here, but it's quite demonstrable. I'm not saying he was a Christian. That's a different sentence. Uh, but he, held, he understood and acted upon this freedom of religion, uncluttered by the government. And that indeed, indeed, it is the very opposite. It's turned on its head to slide over and make the First Amendment say that religion, notice I'm saying religion, not Christianity, religion should have no part in the governmental processes. The principles shouldn't be brought in. I stressed in my previous talk, of course, we're against the theocracy, etc., 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 but nevertheless, it's very different from what's made of it today by the Civil Liberties Union trying to cut away uh, religion from the governmental processes. I don't mean as a formal, uh, formal uh, organized religion, but Christian principles brought in contact uh, with the governmental process. This simply was not the meaning of the First Amendment, and it has the meaning of it has been stolen from us and stolen from the founding fathers' concept uh, that wanted real freedom of religion, uncluttered by the state's state's interference. The terror is that in the last 40 years, increasingly government, and especially the courts, have been the vehicle to force this other worldview on the total population. It is the government that has done this by, uh, by its laws and court rulings. The public school system is the clearest example, but not the only one. It's become the vehicle. The state has become the vehicle to force this other worldview upon the total population and especially upon the children. The very con, very opposite of the meaning of the First Amendment. It is the government which has become a vehicle to force this on the total population, this other worldview, and especially in the public schools. We find as we look at this country that we have now a largely humanistic consensus or ethos, a humanistic culture, a humanistic society. But happily, we do not yet have a totally humanistic consensus or culture. Happily, not a total one, though we're far down the road in certain areas. 
It isn't total. We still have the Christian memory, although it is moving with titanic speed. Now, this being so, our calling is clear. It is that we who uh, that is the, it is that we who hold the Christian worldview, we who love human life, we who love humanity, should stand for, fast for the honor of God. But we should also stand for uh, fast so that humanness will not be lost. It's humanness that increasingly is being lost. Why not? There's no final value, intrinsic value, if you hold it to human life. And humanness isn't in line with the what isness or what is in this other view. So it is lost. And then we must say with sobriety that the United States does not have a manifold destiny. Let me now move to the other side. The United States does not have a manifold destiny. Consequently, if we continue to insist on walking down this road at some point, as God is God and not all things are the same to God, we who have trampled so completely on all those amazing things that God has given us in this country, can we expect that God does not care if we say he exists? He is a person. Not all things are the same to him. You think he doesn't care to what we're doing in this country, in the whole Western world, but this country, as we walk upon the gifts that he has given us? So we must not feel that we're only playing intellectual and political games. If this God exists, and not all things are the same to him, we must realize as we read through the scriptures that those who trample upon the great gifts of God one day will know his judgment. And we must not take that lightly. We must not take that lightly. Now, moving on to the second part of the lecture, the first part of our topic was the secular humanistic worldview versus the Christian worldview. And I have dealt largely with my own country back here in the United States. The second half is, quote, the biblical perspectives on military preparedness, end of quote. This is related to what I have uh, just been speaking about above. They are not really two divergent subjects at all. You must realize that the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc and all the Marx, Engels, Lenin, communism, all of it also has as its base that the final reality is only material energy shaped by pure chance. Just say that communism doesn't refer primarily to economics. It's almost incidental, almost incidental. Communism basically is dialectical materialism, materialism, that the world, is, that all these, the reality is only material or energy shaped by pure chance. That's the very heart of Marx, Engels, Lenin, communism. This is the central thing. The economics of Marxianism really is not that which is central. As I've said, it is dialectical materialism. You've heard that term, I'm sure, most of you all your life. Dialectical. And then comes the word, materialism. 
That doesn't mean just having your eyes at the moment fast on only material things. It means this worldview we're talking about. In other words, the final reality is only material energy shaped by chance. Exactly the same thing that is a plague in our own country under the name of humanism. And that's why these are not two topics. They are one topic. Now, where does it end? It ends in the Marxist block, therefore, inevitably, inevitably in a devaluation of human life. Inevitably, with mathematical certainty, in a devaluation of human life. As in our country, humanism leads to abortion, a fantasize, and euthanasia, and a loss of compassion. This view of final reality does so more totally in the communist bloc because it is totally committed to this view. Totally committed to it as a state policy. Therefore, there is a total emphasis that there are no fixed values. There is a total emphasis that there is only arbitrary law. Frankie has fairly recently made a film called The Second American Revolution. If you haven't seen it, I urge you to get in your churches and so on and see it. It's the most clear thing I know of the slide that has come in our country in areas of law. The Second American Revolution. It is a powerful thing, and one of the people in the film is portrayed, who's portrayed as Stalin. And in that film, he says exactly what his own position was. Law was only what he arbitrarily set forth. Law was only what he arbitrarily set forth. That's all. Now, actually, you will notice that we have a parallel here to what is happening in our own country. But the difference is that in our country, it is not total. In these countries, it has become total. This idea of the final reality has come to its, to its conclusion. So there is no fixed value, there is totally arbitrary law, and there is the total loss of the value of the individual person, and only the state has come to matter. There is an elite which sets the law, which says arbitrarily what the laws are, and which sets forth these things as arbitrary absolutes. They're absolute by law, but they're arbitrary absolutes. So we find in the Soviet bloc a natural direction toward an elite that has more total power in an arbitrary fashion than that of the old kings. The elite in the Soviet bloc is more, title, more total than the old kings. There is no final value system. And therefore, we should not be surprised if they sign the Helsinki uh, this Helsinki Accords, and then go on and continue to persecute their own people without even a wink. Why should they not, with their own view? There's no absolute standard. Only the state matters, and the good of the state as they see it. We're totally naive if we're surprised that when it is convenient, the Helsinki Awards and any written agreements like them can be broken overnight for the good of the state. It's an interesting thing in regard to their abortion laws that when the Soviets first came to power, they made easy abortion laws. 
Later, they found it was not helpful for the state. So overnight, they changed them in the Soviet Union. And in the Soviet Union, abortion became illegal. Later, they changed them back again. A flip-flop with absolutely no problem. Why not? They're making arbitrary laws. We find that on the basis of their worldview, they have a low view of human life concerning the individual person. This takes two forms. First, internal. The operative word is internal. First, the internal depression from Lenin onward. That is internal in their own country. Lenin wrote before he ever came to power that the reason that one of the early attempts of the revolution in France was not successful was that they had not killed enough people. He had put that in a book prior to his coming to power. And in regard to this consideration, we should remember that this is the 50th this year, is the 50th anniversary of the enforced famine by Stalin in which 8 to 10 million Ukrainians, their own people, and Cossacks, were starved to death as a matter of state policy. They simply allowed 50 years ago 8 to 10 million of these people to starve to death, to death uh, for their own, uh, what they considered a state policy. Not political one, but economic, actually, which makes it even worse, it seems to me. With their low view of human life, we cannot expect anything else. You must understand that oppression is not an incidental thing in their system. From Lenin onward, oppression was logical, on their own base, as an integral part of their system. Now, that was internal to their own people. The second result is external, that is, looking outside of their own country. The second result is external, expansion and then oppression. The second result is external, expansion and then oppression. I beg you to understand that this is not a fluke of one moment of their history. It is also a part of the integral system which they hold. As naturally as humanism in our country leads to abortion, a fantasy, and euthanasia, the agent, in the more total expression in the Soviet system, humanism, in quotes, humanism, leads to internal oppression and external expansion and oppression. I must say that I have one admiration for them. That is, from Lenin on, they have been, I think, the only country in the world that has had a consistent foreign policy. They have been totally consistent, unhappily so, unhappily so, tremendously consistent. We can think back to Latvia and Estonia. Poor Latvia and Estonia. They did not want to be overrun, but they were overrun. If you go to Finland, even today, where people have contacts with Latvia and Estonia, there is still sorrow because of this expansion and oppression in those countries. And there is a constant flow of oppression up to the immediate history of today, uh, as we think of uh, Afghanistan and Poland. This is as natural to the materialistic worldview as is abortion, a fantasy, and euthanasia on this side of the Iron Curtain. Those of you who understand what is happening in our own country in regard to a lowering of standards in these areas ought to be able to understand what it means in communist countries where these concepts are total and there is total power to bring forth their natural results.
Now in the light of its natural expansion and oppression wherever they go, what should be our biblical perspectives on military preparedness? I would say from the, my study of the scripture, to not, not do what, what can be done for those in the power of those who automatically and logically oppress is nothing less than a lack of Christian love. It is not loving my neighbor as myself. I do not need to appeal to, quote, natural law, those of you who know these discussions. I do not need to appeal in any way to natural law at this point. The Bible itself is clear. I am to love my neighbor as myself in the manner that is needed in a practical way in the midst of the fallen world at my point of history. To love my neighbor as myself can mean nothing less. This is why I'm not a pacifist. I'm not a pacifist because pacifism in this poor world in which we live, this lost world, means that we desert the people who need our greatest help. As an illustration, I'm walking down the street. I see a big burly man that is beating a little tot to death, beating this little girl, beating her, beating her. I come up and plead with him, do all I can, logically, urging him to stop. If he won't stop, what does love mean? Does love mean I just walk away? Love means I stop him in any way I can, including, quite frankly, as I see it, if I have to, as a last resort, and being sorrowful for it, hitting him. And to me, this is necessary Christian love in a fallen world. What about the little girl? If I desert the little girl to the boy, I have deserted the true meaning of Christian love and responsibility to my neighbor. We have in the last war the clearest illustration one could have with Hitler's terrorism. That is, in the last world war, there was no possible way to stop that awful ter uh, terror that was occurring in Hitler's Germany except by the use of force. There was no way. In 1950, our family, Edith and I, and our children, held a summer Bible school for military dependents in Dachau. It was at that time as it was during the war. It had not yet just become a museum as it is today, if you went there. There were still living in that area Polish people who had been in the camp and would have gone to the ovens within two days if the American troops had not bro broken down a portion of the wall and then with their tank and then broke uh, come in with their tanks and then shot their way in that camp. I shook these people by the hand. They would have been dead within two days if that had, that had not occurred. As far as I'm concerned, this is the necessary outworking of Christian love in the world as it is. We wish it wasn't this way, but it is a fallen world, and this is the way it is. The world is an abnormal world because of the fall. It is not the way God had meant it to be. The world is not the way God meant it to be. It's like it is as an abnormal world in many ways because of man's revolution against God. There are lots of things in this world which grieve us and yet we must face and never act in a utopian manner. Utopianisms in this fallen world have always brought forth tragedy. That's all forms of utopianism. The Bible is not utopian. 
It's realistic about the fact that we live in a fallen world in all areas. The Bible is not utopian. Morality based, uh, based, morality based upon the Bible and not upon a non-Christian romanticism demands the people have our prayer. But not only our prayer. It is biblical to say, as General Bernard Rogers, the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe and a devoted Baptist, incidentally, has recently said, quote, to have nuclear weapons in order to deter their use from the other side, to protect your people, that is moral. But I think it is immoral for a nation that is charged with that responsibility not to have the capability to deter that kind of war. End of quote. We all grieve at any war. Christian that doesn't grieve a war, there's something a matter with him, just like we grieve at all the sorrows in the world. And we naturally grieve concerning the possibility of atomic war. But in a fallen world, there are many things we grieve at, yet nevertheless we must face. From the time of the last world war onward, it is the Europeans, people in government in Europe, more than the Americans who have wanted the protection of atomic weapons and have demanded them. Concerning the present deployment of the United States Pershing II and cruise missiles in Western Europe, Helmut Schmidt said in a keynote speech, a teach, a keynote speech at Times, that's Time Magazine's Atlantic Alliance Conference in just May 1983, just a few days ago, quote, this is Helmut Schmidt. We want the balance of military capabilities to be maintained. We saw that the that we saw that balance endangered by the enormous buildup of the Soviet 55-20 missiles. I, says Schmidt, I am responsible for the double track decision as far as Germany, Germany's German participation goes, and I have not really changed my mind. As a matter of fact, Helmut Schmidt got into trouble politically because he was willing to stand uh, upon that base. The Europeans, who are the leaders in European governments, notice how I'm defining this, those who have responsibility in European governments, understood the reality of what Winston Churchill said immediately after the last war. That is, that with the overwhelming forces of the Soviets, that they could easily dominate Western Europe to the Atlantic Ocean if it were not for the fact of being deterred by the United States having the atomic weapons. Now, please listen to this next sentence carefully. We have come to a crazy place, undoubtedly, with much too much of the atomic weapons on both sides, and where there must be discussion and reduction concerning this. Fair enough. Of course there must be discussion. Uh, uh, concerning this. I'll repeat. We have come to a crazy place, undoubtedly, with much too many of the atomic weapons on both sides and where there must be open discussion and reduction concerning this. But the initial factor is not changed. Europe would even more today than in Ch Winston, the days of Winston Churchill be subject to either military or political domination of the Soviets 
if it were not for the existence of the NATO atomic weapon. More today than in Winston Churchill's day. Further than this, Europe's atomic wealth, to the level that some European nations have now have a higher standard of living than the United States, rests upon the fact that they are spending less for defense than they normally would have because of dependence on the atomic weapons the United States hold. As the Soviets, with their lack of care for the individuals in their nations, on the other hand, have used a larger proportion of their national income for building up their present great military machine so that Western Europe has used less money for defense and the Soviet bloc has used less money for their people and more to build up their machine at the expense of their economy. If the balance is now destroyed, there is no doubt in my mind that either militarily or through political blackmail. I'll just say here, add here, it's been my statement for years that the Soviet Union's dream of what they would wish to do is to totally dominate Western Europe without ever moving a soldier or firing a gun. Political blackmail. If you see that, some of the Western Europe's readers, uh, so uh, leaders saying this kind of thing, that's what they mean. That the preponderance would be so great uh, that there could be political blackmail. The greatly superior forces in Europe would soon overshadow Western Europe. It seems obtuse not to understand this, when all the leaders of the European governments, from the conservatives to the socialists, including that socialist to socialist, Willy Brandt, see the only hope of Europe having peace or not being under blackmail is to keep a balance in both uh, conventional and atomic defense. To go down a list, from the extreme left to the right, there's not a European leader in responsible leadership uh, in Europe today that doesn't say this, this very type of thing. As reported in the International Herald Tribune of April 20, 1982, Mr. Brandt, speaking of the peace movement, said that he feared, quote, the illusions which arise from being too far from reality, end of quote. He also said, quote, Backing away from the NATO decision could give the Soviet Union an excuse for not negotiating seriously. That's no one less a person uh, than uh, Willie Brandt. Unilateral disarmament in this fallen world and with the Soviet's materialistic base would be totally utopian and romantic and lead as utopians always do in a fallen world, to disaster. Further, it may sound reasonable to talk of a freeze at the present level or, quote, we won't use the atomic weapons first. But thinking it through, either of these equals practical unilateral disarmament. The atomic deterrent is removed, and Europe stands at the absolute mercy of the overwhelmingly superior Soviet forces. And even if you don't think the Soviets have overwhelming superior forces throughout the whole world, I know of no one that doesn't agree that they have uh, overwhelmingly superior forces in the Soviet theater, or in the European theater, sorry. The group at Harvard University, professors in their 1983 book, current book, 
Living with Nuclear Weapons is the title of the book, are correct when they point out, and listen with care, please, quote, the danger of nuclear weapons lies in their use rather than their existence, end of quote. And it must never be forgotten that the freeze does not impose constraints on existing weapons. It's a flaw in that. It poses no, a freeze would impose nothing on existing weapons, nothing whatsoever. The world quite properly looks back to the church in Germany during the early wars, the early days of Hitler's rise. And curses it for not doing something when something could have been done. Churchill said in the House of Commons after Chamberlain signed the Munich Pact, quote, The people should know that we have sustained a defeat without a war. They should know that we have passed an awful milestone in our history. And that the terrible words for the time being have been pronounced against the Western democracies. Thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. And do not suppose this is the end. This is the only the beginning of the reckoning. This is only the first step. The first foretaste of a bitter cup that will be proffered to us year after year and less. By a supreme recoverer of moral health and martial vigor, we rise again and take our stand for freedom as in olden times. That's what he said in the House of Commons when Chamberlain reported the signing of the Munich Pact. I do not always agree with the French political scientist, philosopher Jacques Ulu, but he certainly is correct when he writes in his book, False Presence in the Kingdom, quote, It was in 1930 that Christians should have alerted the world to decolonization, to Algeria and to Indochina. That was when the churches should have mobilized without let-up. By 1956, these matters no longer held any shadow of interest. The socio-political process was already in operation and could not made an iota of a difference whether Christians got into the act at once or, or not. It would have not lessened a single atrocity or resulted in a single act of justice. Likewise, in 1934, the occupation of the Ruhr, in 1935, the war in Abyssinia, the Christians should have foretold the inevitable war against Nazism. That was when clarity of vision was ascension. After 1937, it was too late. The fate of the world was all settled for 30 years or more. Go on with his quote. But in those years, the Christian, full of good intentions, were thinking only of peace and were loudly proclaiming pacifism. In matters of that kind, Christians' good intentions are often disastrous. End of quote. One can understand that those who hold a liberal theology have wrote, uh, being romantic in these matters, as they do not comprehend that the Bible is correct when it stresses that we live in a fallen world. We can understand that. I've said so many times in my writings and my lectures, liberal theology is only humanism expressed in theological terms rather than secular terms. So we're not surprised. One can also understand the so-called peace churches, the historic peace churches, holding to a pacifism, as they have through the years, 
And they made a mistake in extension from Christ's command that each of us personally should turn the other cheek, just say none of us do enough, to the state not performing its God-meant duty of protecting the people and standing for justice in a fallen world. We can understand that. Both are understandable, though both in their own way are mistaken, and if they became the government position would be tragic. But when those who call themselves evangelicals, begin to troop along in the popular, unthinking stream of our day and begin to be romantic and utopian, it is time to speak in open opposition. The May 30, 1983 Time magazine reports that the papal, now it's May, just this last month, the May 30, 1983 Time magazine reports that the papal ambassador to Britain, Prononcio Bruno Helm, wrote a letter about Monsignor Bruce Kent, another Roman Catholic leader, of course, wrote a letter about Monsignor Bruce Kent, who heads the campaign for nuclear disarmament in Britain, and, quote from the article, suggested that the Monsignor might be either an idiot or a conscious agent of the Soviet, uh, Soviet, of Soviet design. And this is what he said in that situation. The latter is probably not the case. However, one does wonder if there is then any explanation, seeing as that's probably not the case, for the Monsignor and others equally, speaking as they do, except on the basis of confused and deficient thought. I am convinced that if the Bible-believing people now go along with the concept of peace in our time under the plausible concern and fear of atomic warfare, which we all certainly feel, that our children and our grandchildren will curse us quite properly for not doing something at this moment to restrain the drift toward the loss of Western Europe and other places to solve expansion. It is not a bare theoretical concept. It means more of the world not only being under tyranny, which the Christians always should help people to resist, tyranny, from either side, right or left, but also means more of the world living in the horrible conditions of our dear brothers and sisters in Christ under the Soviet Union, where there not only lack of general freedom, but lack of freedom to teach their, even their own children about truth and about Christ. I do not want that for my children and for my grandchildren. And nothing in the Bible tells me that I should want that for my children, whether my physical children or my spiritual children. Nothing in the Bible tells me I should want that, either for my physical children and my grandchildren or for my spiritual children, which are more numerous. The issue at this moment, I believe, is nothing less than Churchill versus Chamberlain. It is nothing less than the issue of Churchill versus Chamberlain. And remember all Jacques Ulu said. We stand with one or the other. In conclusion, the question comes down as to who really is for peace and who really is for war. That, I'm convinced, is the real question. And the conclusion on the base of the Bible's realism and in the light of even recent history is that those who say they are not for unilateral disarmament, 
but whose position equals unilateral disarmament are those like Chamberlain who will bring war. And very highly, the possibility of not only other forms of war, but will bring atomic war. I heard you say one time that you felt that it was important for y'all to live on the razor's edge and to not have too much financial security, for example. You felt that was important for y'all's faith, to not have a big bank account. And so there was a policy of giving money away rather than accumulating it whenever you were perhaps fortunate enough to uh, have a lot of donations currently. Uh, there's a fellow here in Georgia that does a lot of financial counseling to Christians. I know a main theme that he deals with is getting rid of your comfort live on the edge. Be willing to give away enough so that you're not sitting trusting your bank account. I would, I would want to break in. I don't say, I would want to, yes, I need this, don't I? Uh, I would want to break in and say, I don't say you shouldn't have any bank account. I no, should I say, however, that each individual has to consider before the Lord uh, how much money it's right for they individually to have and uh, be willing to show compassion in their use of accumulated wealth in helping others, yes. Well, then, in a Christian approach to dealing with the arms buildup, to maybe take some kind of a position that would say, we're willing to trust God a, a gap here, to, cut, to be willing to take some kind of a limiting position, which might at least force the Russians to show their hand where there may be a doubt. I think what you're asking for is the same thing as saying for your own children that you should throw away all your food out of the icebox and say to your children, uh, we'll just trust the Lord. I don't think it... I don't I'm not saying all the food out of the icebox. I'm saying have a thinner icebox. Uh, there is purely utopian to think that if we were so foolish as to have a unilateral freeze on this side of the Iron Curtain, uh, that this would call forth, in the basis of their history and their worldview, uh, the fact that, uh, that they would uh, retaliate in a positive way. We wouldn't force them to show their hand, perhaps. A little we wouldn't better. force them to show anything. Purely romantic. I'd like to ask you another thing. Would it not be without, with significance, perhaps, that apparently those forged Hitler papers had something in there that were... That Apparently, Russians wrote that stuff. They tried to make Chamberlain look good. No, I don't think so. I, we, okay, I'm sure lots of it watched it with real care, but I think it's turned out that it was just a pure fake for money. I don't think there was anything more subtle to it than this on that. Believe. Even the part where they tried to make it look like Hitler respected uh, no, I don't the old th Chamberlain? I don't think... I, you, it's, who can tell? Yeah. I'm not going to ever read them. This is obvious. But, but, uh, but from all one can gather, I think it was just pure financial fraud. Yes, over here. She was next. That's all right. We go back and forth. Oh, okay. If I don't forget. <laughs> In that case, um, would you go into some of the implications of what you said for Christians in an occupied country perhaps participating in a resistance movement? Yes. Uh, as I give in a Christian manifesto, our, our, really, our basic realization must be that the, uh, the state does not have a right to command everything. There comes a place when a Christian must disobey the state. You remember the other night in the discussion, I went back to the early church and the early Christians disobeying the state. 
uh, in what was a civil matter and civil disobedience to the Roman state, and therefore they were killed. And I think anyone should know, if they think it through, that you cannot say to any sinful person, uh, I will obey you no matter what you command. We have to, each person is a husband, wife, parent, child, etc., 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 and certainly citizen state uh, must uh, disobey the state if the only choice is disobeying the state or disobeying God. Now, how to carry that out, as you remember I stressed the other night, must be considered uh, upon the appropriate level. Here in this country, as I, you remember I stressed, for you here, when I stressed that the courts, uh, the appeal, electing the right people, we have all kinds of, uh, of possibilities at the present time. But on the other hand, if you were in a certain situation, uh, without any question, individual Christians might think that the only way to consistently operate uh, would be on the basis of a real, uh, a real disobedience, physical disobedience. In terms of uh, perhaps Christians' involvement in the French or Dutch resistance movements during World War II, I, like I, believers actually uh, resisting with force of arms. Yeah, and if I'd been there, I'd have been with them. I must say, I went to Holland for the first time in 1947, and I visited a lot of these leaders of the resistance movement in Holland, and I was very intrigued. Uh, you can ask the Dutch people, they're here. But what I found out was that overwhelmingly it was the Bible-believing people of Holland that were in the resistance movement, not the liberals, not that there were none there. Same thing was true of Hallisby, Professor Hallisby in Norway. He was the leader, it wasn't the liberal, uh, the liberal bishop. And I, I would say I think they're right, because you see, the basic proposition would be uh, that in a certain case, let's say in the Germans occupying Holland, uh, they were not the uh, they were not the proper authority. They had usurped the authority. The the government of the loyal Dutch was in England, with the que where where the Queen was. Therefore, this was this was a people who were imposing something on the poor Dutch uh, that really they had no right to impose. And as such, I honor the Dutch very highly for what they did in the resistance movement. I really do. The French resistance movement is more mixed as history goes on and we see it. Not that there weren't, wasn't some, a lot of courage there, but it was mixed. But the Dutch resistance movement and the Norwegian resistance movement, for example, was pretty clear-cut, I would say. In such a case, I, I, of course, I have to add another note. No one has a right in any of these things to lay anything on somebody else. You must know what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. Everybody should think through the principle, and that is whether it's husband and wife, parent, child, church officer, church member, or, uh, or state and a citizen, uh, that a Christian and is a principle, a final principle which we all should hold. Uh, the realization that you must disobey any of these offices if they command that which is contrary to the word of God. But the form it should take must be the individual leading of the Holy Spirit to the individual. We mustn't lay guilt trips on each other. So I could visualize two brothers in the Dutch family. One would join the resistance movement, one wouldn't. Both looking to the Lord. I could visualize that very loudly. But having said that, I honor those who were willing to put their life on the line uh, so that Holland... Uh, could be free from uh, the 
uh, not only the killing of the Jews, which we hear a lot about, uh, but the terrible persecution of the Dutch as the Dutch, with all that is involved. And after all, if the Germans have been able to consolidate their power, those that I'm closest to in Holland, who are the Bible-believing Christians, would have been squashed in the, uh, in the concentration camps as much as the Jews or anybody else. This is exactly what Jacques Ellul is talking about. On the other hand, I would finally repeat, no one has a right to lay a guilt trip on somebody else. You must, Just as I answered over here about the amount of money you should have in a bank, we're all called for a compassionate use of accumulated wealth. There's no way for a church session or anybody else to say you can have so many thousand in the bank and so not so much. We all should have a compassionate use of our wealth, first in how we make our money and secondly how we use it. But no one has the right to lay on another Christian uh, what that means in the amount of bank accounts. Now, it's exactly the same, I would say, here. If I was in Poland today, if I was a Christian in Poland, what would I do? I have no way to say. I'm not in Poland. I don't know the situation. Yes, over here. Dr. Schaefer, would you please give a couple historical examples of when you said utopias always turn out badly? I guess my education's lacking in that area. Yeah, it would be in every area. For the example, the people um, during when the uh, Industrial Revolution began to arise in, the, in England, and they thought if they could only smash uh, the means of industry and get back to the quote-unquote simple life, it would, everything would be beautiful. Of course, it wasn't at all. The problem wasn't Industrial Revolution. It was the abuses of it. Um, Gandhi, totally utopian, totally utopian. This, the film Gandhi is really, a, a, really an overwhelmingly sellout. Gandhi was it operated was operative all right when he was standing against the British at that point of their empire, but immediately after the British left, his ideas of utopianism are going back to the spinning wheel and back, everybody back to the village. Nobody in India follows his example led to total, total confusion and ugliness. Uh, I feel, as Jacques Ulu said in this quote, uh, of the, those, the Christians who were busy following pacifism prior to the First World War, this was the utopianism. And undoubtedly it led to, uh, it led to the war. Total tragedy. The communes in this country, there's a difference between community and commune in my definition. La Brie is a community. Uh, it's not a commune, according to the definition that often is used anyway. A communion would be a commune would be where everybody has everything in common, everything in common, children as well as wealth, completely turned inward. Now, maybe there's a commune somewhere as opposed to a community that is functioning well, but I don't know any. It brings forth ugliness because it isn't realistic about a fallen world. You could go down through a lot of other examples. You can pick any, any place where people in a fallen world act toward the perfectibility of man, because that's what's really involved. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in front, uh, before the French Revolution, put forth a concept of the perfectibility of man, that if you could just get man rid of his chains, and he was thinking of cultural chains, man would be good. The French Revolution came along, followed out the pattern, and, of course, there was the guillotine. 
And I would just say that, and then the Russian Revolution is a utopianism in theory, as it was presented. And that is that man is perfectible. Man is perfectible. And if you just get rid of his economic chains, man will be good. And if you get confused about the news reports of Anatov as he's giving, speaking recently, he says we're, we're on our way toward communism. And you may say they are communistic. Not in their definition. In their definition, they're socialistic because the people aren't yet ready to be communistic in which everybody would have everything in common uh, with no external boundaries. That may sound great 50, 60 years ago, uh, but it has led to the greatest totalitarian state that probably... The world has ever known of one of the greatest. Total utopianism. Instead of leading toward man being perfectible in the Soviet Union, it has led to total totalitarianism and oppression. All these things, where are you who, raise, who asked the question? Yeah, all these things are utopianisms. I could go on for another hour. But I just flatly, anybody who has an idea uh, that some small thing, and I'm going to say this and don't anybody laugh because I'm being deadly serious, serious. The nudists at the, end of the at the end of the last century in England were absolutely convinced that if everybody took off their clothes, there wouldn't be any more problems. But don't laugh, because they were serious. Of course it didn't work. We live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. So any time, we as Bible-believing Christians, we say the fall is historic. The first chapters of Genesis are historic. We live in a fallen world. The liberal theologian doesn't believe in a fall. But I think a lot of the, a great number of the troubles of our confusion of thinking uh, in regard to health, in regard to many other things, comes because though we stand clearly, theologically, for the fact we live in a foreign world, we don't have the mentality of looking at the world consistently as though it were fallen. Tremendous freedom in all kinds of areas of thinking and life if you really take seriously that we live in a fallen world. And this is the very contrast, of course, to the perfectibility of man. What I would just say, the liberation theology in South America, this, like many terms, is a spectrum. You have to define who you're talking about. But the real liberation theology in South America, coupled with liberal theology, believes in the perfectibility of man. It doesn't lead to something beautiful in these countries. It's a tragedy. Yes. In relationship to our, our rhetoric on... Uh, abortion, we often use the illustrations of the silent holocaust and in relationship to the ovens that the Germans used to bake the, the Jewish population. And I have somewhat of an emotional and intellectual struggle with what our reaction is today to the abortion issue. We say that it's murder and we prove it to our own belief anyway that it is murder and we open up the paper and see it advertised and we look across the table at our wife and we say oh it's terrible isn't it it seems like if we related it to our own personal responsibility and if we truly believed it it seems like our actions regarding it belie the depth of how deep we really believe it and my question is how in the world do we resolve the issue that uh, in a state like Georgia, there's a number of abortions going on at this very moment, and we say, well, if it was going, if they were baking people, we would go down and and pull the plugs or do whatever else. How emotionally and intellectually can we rationalize not doing something physical? 
Well, of course, we should be doing something. And uh, incidentally, of course, we say it is murder. Now, this is, we, we must be, it's, it's an interesting factor. We're dealing with words. Murder means that legally uh, it is murder. The Supreme Court says it isn't. Uh, but nevertheless, it is the killing of human life. And we should be emotionally stirred. I am emotionally stirred that so few Christians seem emotionally stirred. Now, that you must be careful here because we can't say that the Christians are doing nothing because I'm sure there are doctors and nurses in this audience who have paid a tremendous price to do something about abortion. Founding of abortion clinics, etc., but also refusing to serve in hospitals uh, where, the, uh, where there are abortions at the loss of uh, professional advancement. Nurses I know that have been fired because they refused to allow that little sign to deter them when it says do not feed and the baby's being starved to death and they feed the baby and they've gotten into trouble. So it would be unfair to say nobody's doing anything, but emotionally to me, emotionally to me is the factor that we certainly should be moved that the Christians haven't done what they should do. Uh, a very clear illustration when we were starting with the seminars after the making of the film and the doing of the book or whatever happened to the human race, uh, we went around, I just say, uh, to make the picture clear, uh, the gospel films who uh, released both of these films made a bucket full of money uh, on how should we then live seminars. Uh, when the Whatever Happened to the Human Race began, Frankie's little company, with the courage he's had for all these issues, uh, thought that they also would be able to uh, carry the thing fairly easily. Instead of that, the seminars were a tremendous success, both in this country and in Britain. In the sense that people were stirred. People went out of that, and there's been a difference. Before that time, the whole issue was being lost because it was just called a Roman Catholic issue. Today, that isn't the case. There are probably more Bible-believing Christians in the evangelical Protestant side in the, uh, in the anti-abortion thing than Roman Catholics in some places. In Britain, uh, for something I'd ask you to pray for. I'm flying out of here on Friday night, fly the ocean, go right, on, right from Gatwick practically uh, to an anti-abortion rally we're having in Hyde Park. They expect 100,000 there. Uh, you pray for me because I'm flying the ocean going. It's going to be hard. Uh, but the, the point is, when we went to Britain, first of all, with the seminars, whatever happened to human race, uh, I think the British people here will totally agree there was practically no voice against abortion. Not none, but practically none. Today, that isn't so. So it isn't that nothing is being done. But still, the thing which intrigued us was that those seminars were not so well attended, even though they were colossal success and to the praise of God by the time they were finished. But they were not so well attended. Why? Because the evangelicals didn't urge their people to come. And not only that, I'll say with tears, that we knew places where there were evangelical churches and organizations that planned other meetings so their people couldn't come. Why? They didn't want their boat rocked. They didn't want their boat rocked. So it's better today, but it isn't all it should be. Now, as far as physical violence, I would just say every individual has to decide for himself what the Holy Spirit leads him to do. But the important thing is to do things in a way that is a, the appropriate level, as I stress in a Christian manifesto. Uh, I was impressed on the thing we did down here in the memorial service last Saturday with the dignity of it, 
uh, and so on. I think that is our present moment is, is uh, the appropriate level. However, somebody may feel differently, uh, but that is the appropriate level. On the other hand, to be silent and uh, not to speak at a memorial service like that uh, would certainly be entirely wrong. So I would say, where are you? The person, yes. I would just say each person has to determine, and most of, for themselves, what the Lord wants them to do. And most of all, we must be careful not just to grow lax about this thing and forget what has occurred. But we must do it on the appropriate level. Uh, if you're too shrill, if you're too sh- and that doesn't mean not, not to picketing abortion clinics necessarily. If that's what people are led to do, that should be done. Always with the Christian alternatives on the other side of a point of struggling and fighting like mad uh, for uh, crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, but in Florida, for example, a um, uh, young man I know very well uh, picketed, had a picketing of the uh, abortion clinic in Florida. He was arrested, and there was a trial, and he won his case. That's a great step forward. We owe John Edmund, and Frankie was down there with him, we owe John Edmund a great vote of, a great vote of thanks because we set a precedent that you have a, you have a right. It's your free, freedom of speech to say this is the killing of human life. As I said, uh, I'm going to give a talk on the, on this whole thing later in the week, not the practical aspects of it, but abortion is abortion.